Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number three, Deuteronomy chapters one and two. Well, the last time we met, been a little while, I established a principle for the overall context of our study of Deuteronomy that I'm going to remind you of from time to time as we go through this long book. And it is that Deuteronomy should be looked at as more of a sermon from Moses than as a direct oracle from the mouth of the Lord. Okay. Moses' sermon is much like the bulk of the Bible and very much like the New Testament whereby what Moses speaks is divinely inspired. However, divine inspiration, of course, is a cooperative work between man and God. While God's oracles are direct communication, usually in the form of instruction, from God to man. Do you see the difference there? Therefore, while the words that Moses spoke are completely trustworthy and they're true, we have to also see them in an ever so slightly different light than in the first four books of Torah, whereby we had so much of the verbiage in the form of, and the Lord said, thus and so. I think it would be fair to say that an important principle when considering the word of God is that the weight carried by God's direct oracles, that is, the instruction that followed and the Lord said, it's greater than the personal words or thoughts of any man, whether that man is Moses, King David, the Apostle Paul, who, if he is not merely repeating God's words, which they sometimes are, is essentially sermonizing. Now, to this point in Deuteronomy chapter 1, we have listened in as Moses began recounting the history of Israel's wilderness journey and were informed that the date of this sermon is 39, months, uh, 39 years and 11 months um, since the day Pharaoh released his grip on Israel. Verse 19 began, Moses' reminder to the people of Israel, and this is the second generation, by the way, of the Exodus crowd he's speaking to, just why it was that they had been wandering as Bedouins in the desert regions of the Arabian and Sinai peninsulas rather than being permanently settled. And he explains that about 38 years earlier, upon Israel reaching a place called Kadesh Barnea, on the southern edge of the land of Canaan, Moses had commanded that the people go forth and begin their conquering of the Canaanites. But the leaders balked, and they asked Moses to send some scouts on ahead to evaluate the land, and then to come back with a report. Now please note, what we read here contains some new information. In, num in the Numbers 13 account 
about the conquering of Canaan, there's no mention of Moses telling the people to begin the holy war for Canaan. In fact, in many ways, the numbers account makes Moses compliant, if not complicit, in the decision not to go into the promised land and take it immediately. So here we find out that the reason that the scouts were sent out is because the people, meaning the leaders and the elders who were representative of the people, demanded that instead of just moving forward without reservation, as they should have, a dozen leading men were sent to check things out first. Now I'm going to tell you, I have read some commentary that makes it seem as though Moses is kind of embellishing now, here in Deuteronomy, the story of the scouts, perhaps rewriting history a little bit, to kind of put his own actions into a more favorable light now, 38 years later. And that Moses was essentially saying, it's not my fault, I tried to do the right thing, but, you know, these people just wouldn't listen to me. Now, I suspect there is some truth to this, as Moses was but a mild man, pretty reluctant in his current role, not at all a forceful leader. And I don't think there was any inaccuracy to what Moses is saying here. It's just that as men, we tend to remember the parts of events that are usually a little more favorable to us. And we tend to bend what we were thinking at that time to what actually happened. Now, I have no doubt that Moses exhorted the people to have no fear and to march upon Canaan, but he also found himself in a quandary when the leaders that he depended on insisted on caution. You know, leadership is a very tricky thing. People have to buy in to what you're doing on the one hand. But on the other hand, what good is leadership if one but stands at the head of the group and simply conducts it to whatever, wherever it wants to go. This was Moses' dilemma. It's one I think that many of you can identify with. Now I want you to notice something that was said in verse 20 that is not particularly unique in the Torah, but rather it is an excellent example of a principle that usually goes over our heads. It says there, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord God is giving to us. And the principle is summed up in the tense of the word giving. See, the the biblical Hebrew language doesn't use past, present, and future tenses as does English. Although modern spoken Hebrew has adopted the use of these tenses, by the way. That is, in English, something has happened before, it's in the past, it's happening now, it's in the present, or it's going to happen in the later on in the future. Instead, the biblical Hebrew language uses what's called perfect and imperfect tenses. The perfect is roughly equivalent to past and present, and the imperfect roughly equivalent to something future. But but that rough equivalency is very rough. Here's the issue, and I'm only going to take a moment to generalize. Our modern day past, present, and future tenses are about when 
an action is taking place. It's all about when. It makes the context of a statement set in time. Did it occur in the past? Is it happening now? Is it going to happen later? Okay. That's not what goes on in biblical Hebrew. And I stress the term biblical Hebrew because, again, modern Hebrew does use past, present, and future tenses. Now, in biblical Hebrew, the tenses of the scripture rather denotes the state of the current action. Is the action completed or is it continuing? The idea of when in time an action is happening is inferred by the context of the overall statement, not by the direct verb tenses. So in the statement in verse 20, when the Lord is, is giving the hill country of the Amorites to Israel, the idea is this is an ongoing process. The giving of the land had already begun. It's just not yet completed. Some translations of the Bible say, will give to us. Others say, gives to us. Others still say, is about to give to us. You'll find that depending on whatever translation you happen to have. The problem is that these translations are, are setting the event of the giving of the land of Canaan to the Hebrews in time. And these versions want to say it's either happening now, it's going to happen later, but soon. Right? That's wrong. That's incorrect. Right? And we see this same kind of issues repeated all throughout the Bible. You've got to watch for it. Okay. Here in Deuteronomy, what's being expressed is that the Hebrews are simply somewhere along a long process of possessing the land of Canaan. And exactly where along this timeline the process, process currently is, it's just not implied. We don't know. Now, this problem with misunderstanding Hebrew tenses has created all kinds of issues, particularly and trying to understand prophecy. Prophecies, by our definition, are almost always future in our way of thinking. Because past, present, and future are so embedded in our Western language, I usually try to explain the biblical prophecies by saying that they happened in the past, like the return of the exile, of the Hebrews. But many of these same prophecies are also going to happen again in the future. But, but technically it's not a, a past or a future matter. It's an ongoing process. You see the difference? Now Moses recounts the 12 scouts returned with some samples of the fruits of the land of Canaan along with the report that it's a good land. But the people refused to go up and take the land as the Lord God had commanded they do because another part of the report was that the task would be difficult and dangerous. The inhabitants were big. Or there were lots of them. They were behind many walled cities. The people responded, Jehovah must hate us. So they refused to go and take the land. Now let me remind you that the term the people is almost always actually a reference to the leadership. 
Okay. See, this was a tribal society. The people didn't vote. Okay. So even so, the leadership was thought of as being representative of the people. If the leadership of a tribe of Judah decided something, in the Bible it would say, the people of Judah decided thus and so. Now this is important to grasp, because what is happening here is that Moses is blaming the leadership council for this action of rebellion that had proved so costly in terms of Hebrew lives and in time. See, Moses says he did his best to convey, uh, rather to convince the leadership council to put aside their fears and instead just trust and obey God. He reminded them that the fire cloud they followed by day and night was proof that Yehoveh was with them, that he had already gone ahead of them, that he'd already secured the victory. But despite the extraordinarily powerful evidence of God's love for his people and his ability to do whatever he says he's, he's going to do, the leadership dug in their heels. And as a result, the Lord declared that not one of this evil generation is going to enter the land he had set apart for his people. The evil generation was defined earlier as men aged 20 years and older at the time of this incident. Now, every time I recall this incident of the 12 scouts, I cannot help but have some fear and trepidation just kind of vibrate through my body. Because here was a society in which, particularly at this point in the journey, the tribal leaders decided autocratically what was going to happen. Okay. The general population didn't have a lot of choice but to follow or pack up and leave, to strike out on their own. However, the leaders also knew their decisions had to be generally popular and acceptable or they wouldn't survive as leaders very long. Yet the Lord held the general population accountable for the actions and decisions and rebellion of their leadership. Although he assigns somewhat more accountability to the leadership. I mean, how much more must God hold each of us accountable for the decisions of our leadership in a democratic nation in which we do choose who is going to lead us and have a process even to remove those who lead us poorly. As much as we'd like to, we can't completely separate ourselves from our secular government leadership or from the leadership of our church or our synagogue. And neither can the leadership separate itself from the actions of those they govern. Okay. Moses did not enter the promised land. And he states on numerous occasions that it was on account of the people, he says, that he was barred. In other words, as the leader, he ultimately bore on his shoulders the responsibility for the actions of the people. Our salvation in Yeshua is certainly on an individual by individual basis. 
But our earthly fates, brothers and sisters, are absolutely bound up together as a group. And the principle that we see in the Bible is that after the Lord's first major division of humans into Hebrews and Gentiles, the next division of people in God's eyes was into nations of people. Nations hold a corporate responsibility before Yehovah. Entire nations will be judged together as a single group of people based on the decisions of its leadership and the overall actions of the people of that nation. That, that, that several individuals within a group are opposed to some rebellious or ungodly action does not exempt them, does not exempt us from suffering the national judgment that the Lord may, and Revelation indicates he will, inflict on us. So it behooves us to fight tirelessly in our families and our communities to uphold the Lord's name and his commands for the sake of our nation and ourselves. Now Moses next tells this new generation of Hebrews what eventually happened after their refusal to go into the promised land. The leadership acknowledged they were wrong. They finally acknowledged it. The leadership said, look, certainly... We do not want to be detoured back into that wilderness. And we don't want to be permanently barred from ever entering the promised land. You know, and on the surface, that kind of thinking certainly sounds like contrite hearts full of repentance for their rebellion when they say, okay, now we'll go up and fight just as God commanded us. Then the Lord says something in response to that that ought to shake us up. He says, no, don't go up and don't fight because I'm not in your midst now. But so anxious were they to regain merit in the Lord's eyes and all the more anxious to avoid God's pronouncement of judgment upon them, the people again ignored the Lord and they tried to take the promised land on their own without his leadership or permission. The results were predictable and disastrous. Not taking the land when commanded was rebellion. Taking the same land when commanded not to was also rebellion. The timing belongs to the Lord just as much as the deed. The timing belongs to the Lord just as much as the deed. Now, follow this sequence because this pattern is no different in the New Testament and certainly no different in our modern era. One, the Lord commands Israel to take the promised land. Two, the people become afraid, so they hesitate. Three, the people decide they're going to stop and evaluate whether they kind of agree with God on this whole thing or not. Four, they choose to disagree. Sorry, God, you're wrong. Fifth, God calls this disagreement rebellion, and he pronounces a judgment upon them. Sixth, the people, upon hearing the judgment, repent and say, okay, I've changed my mind. We'll, now we'll do what you say. Seventh, God says, no, 
The time has passed. My offer's revoked. My judgment stands. The door is closed for you to enter. Can you see where I'm going with this? And etch this God principle in your minds, in your hearts, because our lives depend on it. It's not always possible to recoup an opportunity lost by failure of faith. We Christians love to say, well, you know, if God closes the door, he'll open a window. You know, that sounds really nice. But I say, that's not necessarily so. The close the door, open a window philosophy is what these Israelites were counting on. The Lord said, no, no, not this time. No. There comes a life, time in the life of an unbeliever that the offer of salvation is rescinded. I don't know when that is. Certainly a death. But at what point before that, who knows? No man knows. But for the believer, we can sit on the sidelines for so long, follow our own ways for so long, that when the consequences of our rebellion finally become apparent to us and we determine to go back and, and try to recoup those things that our lack of faith causes us to dismiss, we can't. And considerably more often than not, those specific opportunities are permanently lost. They're never going to be recovered, at least not by us. Probably thousands of poems and, and epitaphs have been written over the centuries describing how the past can't be regained. Oh, I'm not saying that God won't recognize our repentance and allow us joy and maybe in his time another opportunity to serve him in a different way. But who among us that has reached an advanced age doesn't look back at lost opportunities and we mourn it to some degree or another? And we mourn it not because our lives are necessarily ruined or without hope, because they're not, but because so much pain and needless suffering, often involving innocent parties, was the result. Or perhaps we see a great blessing that we turned down. And guess what? It went to somebody else. Our lives could have been so much more fruitful for the kingdom of God if only we had trusted and obeyed. Israel could by this time, have been enjoying God's rest in God's land. They could have been enjoying it in a matter of months after leaving Egypt. Instead, due to lack of faith, only the offspring of those who left Egypt were going to be permitted that rest. They would get that blessing. And no amount of repentance by their parents was going to change that reality it wouldn't even change for Moses. Let's move on to chapter 2. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 2. He 
If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 198. I love this book. I just love Deuteronomy. Then we turned and began traveling into the desert along the road to the Sea of Suf, as Adonai had said to me, and we skirted Mount Seir for a long time. And finally Adonai said to me, you've been going around this mountain long enough. Head north. Give this order to the people. You're to pass through the territory of your kinsmen, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. Now they're going to be afraid of you, so be very cautious. And don't get in disputes with them, for I'm not going to give you any of their land. No, not even for one foot to stand on, inasmuch as I have given Mount Seir to Esau as his possession. Now, pay them money for the food you eat. Pay them money for the water you drink. Because Adonai, your God, has blessed you in everything your hands have produced. He knows that you've been traveling through this vast desert. These 40 years, Adonai, your God, has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. So we went on past our kinsmen, the descendants of Esau, living in Seir. We left the road through the Arabah from Elat and uh, Etzion Gefer and turned to the pass along the road through the desert to, to uh, Moab. And Adonai said to me, don't be hostile towards Moab or fight with them because I will not give you any of their land to possess since I've already given R to the descendants of Lot as their territory. The Amim used to live there, a great numerous people as tall as the Anakim. They're also considered Rephaim, as are the Anakim, but the Moabim call them Amim. In Seir, the Horim used to live, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed and destroyed them, settling in their place. Israel did similarly in the land it came to possess, which Adonai gave to them. Now, Get going and cross the Wadi Sered. So we crossed the Wadi Sered. And the time between our leaving Kadesh Barnea and our crossing of the Wadi Sered was 38 years. Until the whole generation of men capable of bearing arms had been eliminated from the camp. As Adonai had sworn they would be. Moreover, Adonai's hand was against them to root them out of the camp until the last of them was gone. Now, when all the men who were able to bear arms had died and were no longer part of the people, Adonai said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the descendants of Ammon, don't bother them or fight with them, for I will not give you any of the territory of the people of Ammon to possess, since I have given it to the descendants of Lot as their territory. Now, this too is considered a land of the Rephaim. Rephaim, and whom the Amori call Zamzumim, used to live there. They were a large, numerous people as tall as the Anakim. But Adonai destroyed them as the people of Ammon advanced and settled in their place, just as he destroyed the Horim as descendants of Esau advanced into Seir and settled in their place where they live to this day. It was the same with the Avim who lived in the villages as far away as Gaza. The Kotforim coming from Kafdor destroyed them and settled in their place. Get up, get moving, cross the Arnon Valley. Here, I have put into your hands Sichon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, his land. Commence the conquest, begin the battle. Today I will start putting the fear and dread of you into all the peoples under heaven 
so that the mere mention of your name will make them quake and tremble before you. I sent envoys from the uh, Kedmot desert to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with a peaceable message. Let me pass through your land. I'll keep to the road, turning neither right nor left. You will sell me food to eat for money. Give me water to drink for money. I only want to pass through. Do as the people of Esau, living in Seir, and the Moabites, living in Ar, did with me, until I crossed the Jordan into the land Adonai our God is giving to us. But Sichon, king of Heshbon, wouldn't let us pass through his territory, because Adonai, your God, had hardened his spirit. He had made him stubborn, so that he could hand him over to you, as is the case today. Adonai said to me, See, I have begun handing over Sichon and his territory before you. Start taking possession of his land. Then Sichon came out against us, he and all his people, to fight at Yahaz. And Adonai, our God, handed him over to us so that we defeated him, his sons, all of his people. And at that time, we captured all of his cities, completely destroyed every city, men, women, little ones. We left none of them. As booty for ourselves, we took only the cattle along with the spoil from the cities we'd captured. And from Aroer on the, on the uh, edge of the Arnon Valley and from the city to the valley all the way to Gilead, there was not one city too well fortified for us to capture. Adonai, our God, gave all of them to us. The only land you didn't approach was that of the descendants of Ammon, the region around the Yabok River the cities and the hills and wherever else Adonai our God forbade us to go. The results of the rebellion of the first generation are the subject of the first words of chapter 2. They were literally required to march in the opposite direction from the promised land. They headed south towards the sea or the sea of Suf or better in our day, the Gulf of Aqaba. I mean, what a dismal journey that must have been. Soundly defeated by the Amorites under the sentence of death for all who were age 20 and older and now relegated to living in a bleak desert for an indeterminate period of time. Chapter 2 is in contrast to chapter 1. Okay. The first generation rebelled, but now the second generation is being obedient. The first generation was sent southward. Now the second generation is to march northward. The first generation was to enter the promised land from the southwest. But now the second generation is to enter the promised land from the southeast. The first generation was told that they had stayed at Mount Horeb long enough. But now the second generation is told that they had been skirting the promised land long enough. The first generation knew they'd die in that desert. But the second generation knew they would live in God's set-apart land. Next we get a whole series of instructions about certain people that the Lord wants Israel to avoid. Now, this avoidance is not about a fear within Israel, nor a worry that maybe they'd be defeated. Rather, it's that the territories inhabited by these people 
were not to be part of the promised land. And the ancestry of the people involved, at least the people who currently occupied each of those territories, they were all related to Abraham in some way or another. Now, as I mentioned in our last lesson, this coming holy war, see, wasn't about conquering the world or gaining as much wealth and treasures they could. It wasn't an attempt to force the worship of Jehovah, conversion, on anybody. This was but the taking of a specific piece of land that the Lord declares is His. Not Israel's. His. This was not to be the creation of a Hebrew empire. The first nation with which Israel was to avoid conflict was that of Edom. Edom is another name for Esau. Who's Esau? Jacob's twin brother. That's right. Now, the command from the Lord for Israel to be careful with Seir, remember Seir's That's just yet another name for Edom. See, in in, in that command, the be careful doesn't mean be wary or be afraid. The Lord explains that the Edomites are going to be very alarmed and afraid of Israel. What is not said was well understood in ancient times. That when a people you feared came too near, you went out in battle to try and bruise them. To show that Perhaps a treaty would be a better option. A treaty allowing the current king to remain in his post. Rather than some attempt at conquering them outright. The idea is that Moses and the leaders of Israel need to do everything possible to make it clear to Edom that they have no intention of either taking their territory, not even taking their food or water from them. Therefore, Israel skirted the land of Edom and continued northward towards the Arabah that was in the region of Moab. Now the Moabites too had a kinship with Israel, although not quite as close a one as they had with the descendants of Esau. The Moabites were the descendants of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. And for the sake of the patriarch Abraham, who loved Lot, the Lord had set apart land for Lot's descendants. And Jehovah makes it clear that this land is not for Israel. Therefore, they're to avoid conflict with Moab. And then starting in verse 10, we get some interesting footnotes, I think. We're spending a few moments to examine. We're told that the, 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 the people called the Amim formerly inhabited Moab. And these Amim, it says, are to be counted as Rephaim. Well, sometimes we forget that a few centuries after the Tower of Babel incident with Nimrod, which took place about 300 years after the Great Flood, the world was sufficiently populated that if a group of people migrated into a new land, chances are they either had to take that land from its previous owners or they settled there and perhaps grew into numbers that eventually dominated the area. Well, when the descendants of Lot 
moved into the area of Moab and others of his descendants into the area of Ammon, these were already occupied territories. They had an indigenous people. They didn't move undiscovered or into an entirely unpopulated area. The people who lived in Moab first were called the Emim, and only later did Lot's descendants become the ruling people of that territory. Now, this is the first time, rather, this is not the first time that we've encountered this term, Rephaim. And, and here we're told that the Amim were to be counted as, F, uh, as Rephaim. Well, the Rephaim are the post-flood version of some people called the Nephilim. All right? A race of giants, evil giants, that existed before the Great Flood. Now, there's precious little in the Bible that really describes what these Nephilim were, as the verses are kind of ambiguous. Now, some see the Nephilim as an intermixing of the line of Seth with the line of Cain. Seth being the line of good from Adam and Eve, and Cain being the line of evil from Adam and Eve. Others say that the Nephilim were a product of fallen angels who had sex with human women. All right? And then the sons who were the products of this illicit mixing were powerful, fierce, unusually large and evil men. Now, though these men, which carried the name of Nephilim, married other women. And then over long periods of time, their dominance spread. Now, how their existence bridged the flood is another matter of mystery. Okay. In other words, if all humanity except Noah's family was wiped out in the flood, how did the Rephaim reappear after the flood? Did the fallen angels repropagate in Noah's descendants? One line of thought is that it was the memory of the Nephilim that caused any unusually tall people to get that label. Right? And eventually the name even evolved from Nephilim to Rephaim. Right? So it's, you know, it's not unlike us today seeing a seven foot tall basketball player and calling him a giant. We don't, we don't really mean giant like in mythology, we just mean that this guy is pretty much at the outer boundaries of human height. Okay. Now, what adds to the mystery of the Rephaim, though, is Egyptian records from around the time of Moses that actually reports the finding of burial chambers that contain the human remains of men who were over nine feet tall. Okay. The Egyptians didn't have a giant legend in their mythology. So it's pretty hard to assign this record of finding the bones of men who were over nine feet tall to some mythological thinking that they had. Further, where they found those remains, the Egyptians was in the former kingdom of 
Og, which is said to have come from the Rephaim. Now, I don't have an answer to all this, but boy, it's fascinating stuff, isn't it? All right. And we, we can't just easily dismiss it as some kind of a biblical fairy tale. Okay. Now, verse 12 then explains that the area that um, Edom, now here called Seir, and his descendants occupied was previously occupied uh, by a people called the Horites. And at some point, the descendants of Esau pushed them out, dispossessed them. And let's not overlook that the reason the descendants of Esau were able to dispossess the Horites is because the Lord gave that land to Esau as his inheritance. So there is actually a precedent to Jehovah assigning land to a nation of people or nations of people, non-Hebrews, not just to Israel. Okay, And of the Lord insisting that because he has made a divine assignment of territory to certain folks, it was to remain that way. Now let's tuck that little thing away in our memory banks as we go forward and realize that the Lord is the Lord of all, not just of Israel. Now verse 14 confirms that the time from the great rebellion of Israel's leadership, that 12 spies incident, until the time Israel crossed the border to enter Moab was 38 years. And it was during this 38 years that that first generation of the Exodus, they all died out which was a prerequisite for the children entering the promised land. And after passing through Moab, Israel would next encounter Ammon. And the same instruction is given regarding Ammon as for Moab and for Edom. Don't harass them. Because Ammon represents descendants of Abraham by means of Lot. And we're told that living among the Amorites are also some Rephaim, some of these evil giants. The knowledge of which I'm pretty sure made it a lot easier for Israel to decide not to fight these people. Now verse 20 tells us that the people whom the Ammonites dispossessed were a people called the Zamzumim. Try saying that fast three times. Now this word, Zamzumim, is interesting. In a dynamic translation, it means the people whose speech sounds like buzzing. I mean, that's kind of spooky sounding on the surface, but it probably just meant that their manner of speech to the Hebrew ear was odd. All right? It must have been a rather high-pitched vocalization. Then there are these people mentioned who are called the Avim. Are people who first occupied an area that we today called Gaza. Right? An area that would eventually be occupied by the Philistines. Well, after all this genealogy and history, which I find fascinating, the order is given to Israel to charge. Let the holy war of the taking of Canaan commence. The first words of verse 24 are essentially a war cry. Arise! 
up. A few words later it says, begin the occupation. So far in Deuteronomy, we've read about the various people Israel is not to go to war with. Now we get a list of the people they are to fight against. And of course, it begins with the Amorites. Why do I say of course? Because chapter 2 is a contrast to chapter 1. And chapter 1 ends with the people of Israel starting an unauthorized holy war, an unholy war, if you would, with these same Amorites and getting soundly thumped. Now in chapter 2... The call is to attack the Amorites in a true God-led holy war, and therefore victory is not only assured, but from a spiritual point of view, war is over. We'll finish up this chapter next week.